Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. The guest joining me for today's interrogation is New York Times bestselling author Brad Taylor. Brad graduated from the University of Texas, accepted a commission in the U.S. Army, and served more than 21 years. Brad retired as a Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel, and his assignment included eight years in the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, as well as operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other classified locations. Brad earned a Master's of Science in Defense Analysis from the Naval Postgraduate School with a concentration in irregular warfare. His debut novel, One Rough Man, launched to immediate success in 2011 and introduced readers to Pike Logan. Pike now appears in his 13th novel, Daughter of War, which hit bookshelves last month in January. After selling more than 2 million copies worldwide, Brad continues to consult on asymmetric threats for various agencies when he's not busy with Pike's next adventure. Without further ado, Brad, welcome to Writers on the Beat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, I I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Before I start peppering you with everything that I want to know about your process and your craft, I've got to congratulate you on Daughter of War. I just finished that reading that this past week. Uh, it consumed about three days of my life, um, but it's a fantastic book, and I, I don't think I've enjoyed a novel that much since Vince Vaughn. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The one of my favorite parts as a, moments as a reader is when the author reveals the title in the book, and you did that fantastically in this story, where we learn where Daughter of War comes from. What what inspired that title? Uh, honestly, believe it or not, um, Amina, the, the uh, character that it refers to, she was supposed to be just a way to introduce the plot. I had in my head how she would, uh, uh, you know, get the phone and start uh, things rolling and Pike would end up colliding with her. And then that, the plot was going to go from there. And the, uh, the original title for the book was Shadow Strike, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I started writing her scenes, I, I kind of fell in love with her. And I said, she's going to stay for the rest of this book. I don't know how, but I got to figure it out. <laughs> and by the time it was done, I contacted my publisher and said that we got to change the title. It, the, the heart of the book's different from what it was. So on that note, and she, just as you described, like she's a, an immediately lovable and relatable character. Like you care about her very fast and very early. And uh, was was she inspired by anything in your personal life or your personal experiences, or did she just organically come out on the keyboard? She kind of organically came out on the keyboard. I mean, I do have two daughters. So <laughs> sure. I could see where that was coming from then, but the, uh, um, she kind of organically came, like I said, I, she was supposed to be just uh, kind of one of the dominoes in the chain. And uh, those first few scenes I wrote about her in Monaco, uh, I really liked by the time I got to the aquarium, I was like, she's staying. I don't know how, but, Somehow or another, she's staying. So uh, you addressed this a little bit in, in your author's notes and actually in the, in the story itself, but I was really surprised um, that the Casino of Monaco was not everything I've ever seen in a James Bond movie. Oh, I know. That was so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> when I do book research, I usually, I, if I can get on the ground, I'll get on the ground and see you know, what we used to call sight, sound, smells of the battlefield to get a feel for what the terrain's actually like. Because, you know, Thailand's different from Monaco. And you can Google Earth only gives you so much. 
And so I usually when I go on these trips, I have what I say is about 50% I'm looking for. I already have in my mind what I'm gonna look for. And then 50% is looking for me. And uh, I had in my head, I was like, we're going to, because Switzerland, I'd already figured out that North Koreans run around Switzerland and all that. So I was going to use Switzerland and I saw Monaco was real close. And so I told my wife, we're going to go to the casino. Somehow or another, I'm going to put that thing in the book because I've seen it in movies and everywhere else. And then when I got there, boy, what a letdown. Yeah, I was, I was let down even just as a reader. I'm like, that, that, it, it can't be that, that, that bad. But I, I'm going to take your word for it until I go. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not decrepit falling down but it's definitely like uh if you've been to las vegas Mm -hmm. you have the strip and then you have the casinos that are six blocks away from the strip okay yep yeah yeah you 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 can see the strip from there but it ain't it um on on that note um how much of of your stories is uh and your research is done from afar and how much of it is you know boots and loafers on the ground is is there you know, half and half, or how it's do you? Probably half and half, because I do an enormous amount of research on the uh, just the general threat scenario itself. For instance, this mm-hmm. whole thing came about. The plotline itself came about because uh, when I first started writing, we were rattling sabers with North Korea. They had, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they were doing ballistic missile tests, and we were doing fire and fury and all that. And uh, I used to be stationed on First Special Forces Group in Okinawa, Japan, and our wartime mission was the Korean Peninsula. Um, sure. So- constantly studying North Korea. So I had a healthy appreciation for what they can and can't do. They have the fourth largest army in the world, and they have five tons of chemical and biological weapons, which they've had for years. Wow. And I always just struck me as funny as we always, mm-hmm. which we should, we should worry about their nuclear capability, but we just never said a word about their chemical and biological capability. Sure. So it, it kind of, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be ironic if to get away from our sanctions, to get around our sanctions against our nuclear WMD, Kim Jong-un sold some chemical WMD. And that's kind of what started the storyline. But that's a lot of research, you know, to making sure yeah. uh, I've got this right, I've got that right. I mean, and I like weaving in real events into the story because truth is always stranger than fiction. So, you know, Kim Jong-un killed his half-brother in Malaysia. That's in the book. Uh, there's a lot of things in the book that are real, that organizations in Switzerland are real. There's a thing in the, in the book about... Um, Four North Korean officers had an actual discharge on a Swiss rifle range, yes. which I was like, what in the world? That's a true story. <laughs> How is this possible? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was one of the things I um, did a little bit of work uh, related to that with uh, radiation security and, and seaburn hazmat stuff. And it was uh, it was just amazing to me. You know, the all of the focus is, is so um, intense on everything radiological or nuclear, but those are even oftentimes being referred to as weapons of mass disruption where, you know, someone blows up a tanker of chlorine gas or a lot of other things that are driving down the road. And that's a true mass destruction that our our bodies have, you know, components that will help them overcome radiation sickness. There's nothing you've got that's going to really help you from chlorine. Yeah. Especially, you know, mustard gas, things like that, that melts Mm -hmm. your lungs. But the, uh, and it's easier to make. I mean, ISIS right now is making mustard gas in, uh, in Syria. It's easier to make. It's easier to transfer the technology. Mm-hmm. Every bit of that's easier than a nuclear bomb. And yes. so I thought, you know, why are we, we should be more concerned with this than, you know, the threat of them selling a nuclear bomb. Because you, you have to be, you know, genius to build a nuclear bomb. But you don't yes. have to be a genius to replicate chemical and biological, biological munitions. No, you don't, you don't need a, a really smart guy. And you don't need a lot of expensive equipment. Um, okay. You know, one of the things that 
um, that cops struggle with is, um, you know, finding guys who are, who are really invested in, in that technology and encountering a lot of that, you know, talking to a room full of cops about anything, radiation, chemical, biological, like they automatically shut off. Um, in your experience with your guys, um, was that kind of a, an analogous circumstance where you would have to, you know, really specifically motivate you guys to stay on point or, or to really pay no. attention and take this stuff no, out? No, that's one of our uh, wartime missions in my old unit was specifically counter WMD. We trained on it all the time. So, no, that was, that's just a plank. You had a plank. I do hostage rescue. I do counterterrorism. I do counterproliferation. That's just something that was in your portfolio. Well, that's, that's fantastic to hear because <laughs> when it, when I've been trying to teach cops about, uh, you know, radiation response and, you know, looking out and it's all glassed over, I'm like, it's half me and half them, you know, I can only do so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, on, on that note, um, when you are putting these stories together, where do you try to strike the balance between readers demand for authenticity and the need to safeguard the strategy and tactics that are still being deployed, still effective downrange for the guys that are, that are still on the ground? Well, most of it, the classification generally falls along two lines. It's either a piece of kit, it's some capability we have, which is easy. I just don't put that capability in the book. I'll have to figure out some other capability, but you just don't put that in there. Or it's specific operations that are being conducted, which is another easy thing. I just don't put that in there. The uh, specific tactics, techniques, and procedures of what we do, you will never see on the page. I mean, you'll see things like the men float into the room like water split from a bucket. Yes. But I'm not describing how they're actually doing their <laughs> So it's, it's not that hard. I, I, I get that question a lot. And it's, as long as I don't, you know, it, while it's really sexy to say, ooh, I knew about this capability, I'm going to put that in there. Well, I'm not. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of times I put in a counter capability. There's one book I put in, uh, I can't remember which book it was. I think it was a widow strike, where these terrorists are using a, a specific communications methods because they know the NSA can't crack it. Well, I know the NSA can, so go ahead and take that advice. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. So in, when you're putting your stories together, um, how much of, of the plot, how much of the, how many of the elements are based on your own assignments, your own work, or do you more rely on headlines and hypotheticals and then kind of fill in the gaps? Uh, it's, it's a strategic and operational level. It's definitely hypothetical. I, I come up with an idea that I see, uh, something strikes my fancy. It depends on the book, but something will come up and I'll say, Hey, that makes a good plot. Um, but when you get down to a tactical level, uh, you can't help but use your own experiences. It just, it's, uh, you know, if I was going to write a scene about riding a bike, what would I do? I'd think about what, what happened the last time I rode a bicycle. True. Um, so when I'm writing operational elements of it, you know, an assault or things like that, a gunfight, you can't help but, you know, fall back on what you know. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, especially with this podcast, you know, focusing on trying to help writers compose cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. Um, one of my main motivations for, for asking you to come on is that I, I see a lot of, a lot of similarity in the, the crime and the espionage subgenres. Um, I think the folks, the characters, the real life personalities that make good cops would make good professional uh, or good military and good espionage professionals overall. Um, the jobs are different, sometimes similar, but I think the characters and the the people that are in these stories are are really very similar. But if you look at, you know, like your main character, Pike Logan, he's a covert operative doing contract work for the intelligence community. 
at first glance, it might not seem like a police detective and Pike Logan are going to have a whole lot in common, but in my biased opinion, he's a good guy chasing bad guys who are out committing heinous crimes. It's maybe looking at like domestic homicide versus mass murders and terrorism. Uh, how much similarity do you see between the, the crime and espionage subgenres? Actually, uh, I, it's almost like you set that question up. We didn't talk before. <laughs> I, I think uh, there's a huge bleed over. In fact, what I read are murder mysteries, John Sanford, Robert Crace, all those guys, that's the genre I read. And, oh. uh, while my tapestry is much larger instead of just, you know, the Twin Cities, it's, you know, spanning the globe. What Pike is doing is exactly the same thing. It's, it's, it would be super easy to say, um, you know, whatever. NSA has Widget X and they found a terrorist hotbed at this house. Go hit it. And the book would be 10 pages long. It's, he's got to figure out the problem set, just like anybody trying to figure out a murder. There's clues here, clues there, and he's trying to piece it all together to figure out exactly what's going on. In fact, in, in Daughters of War, the book we're talking about, the initial thing is he thinks that the uh, North Koreans are selling on the OPM hack that China did to Syria. He doesn't even realize it's WMD related. And so he finds clues that say, hey, I think we're on the wrong thread here. I don't think this is what these guys are doing. So on that note, that's going to make me jump to a totally different question. But um, so I really appreciated how you kept real world chaos in the story, like on that very topic that I can't tell you how many times we've gotten a piece of Intel, a piece of data. Um, somebody calls up and, and wants some you know, mutual aid and it turns out to be very different from how it started. Um, Mike Tyson once said that, you know, everybody has a plan until you hit them. And my old team lead would say that no plan survives first contact. What's the experience like for you when you're planning out the moment for your characters, for your heroes, when everything goes to hell for them? It's, it's actually that I try to be as realistic as possible because that's exactly right. No plan does survive first contact. Everything that happens in combat, as soon as somebody you make first contact, something else is going to go wrong. And um, I mean, we used to say that we're, we're problem solvers. You know, mm -hmm. TV shows, you shoot all day and run all night, but if you can't solve the problem, there's plenty of people who can shoot all day. They're out on, you know, the NRA rifle matches and there's plenty of people who run all day. They're doing triathlete, but uh, there's very few people who can put all that together and solve a problem. And so when I write the stories, I, I, I mean, I've been in plenty of operations that didn't go like they were supposed to. <laughs> so the, uh, I, I always try to include that in there because uh, Murphy's a bitch. Murphy's out there. Yeah. You know, something's going to go wrong. It's going to go wrong. When, when you are putting these books together, where do you start? Um, are you inspired first by locations, by the crimes and the bad guys? Or, or do you want to see or do you write to, to see what your protagonists are going to accomplish? It, it kind of depends. Um, each book's different. Like for this one, like I said, I was discussing uh, in my head, I was toying with the North Korean threat. And then I was looking for a set, you know, where am I going to place this? Other books are specific to the set. Uh, Enemy of Mine, I was talking about Hezbollah, which that's obviously going to be in Lebanon. So the set is there. Uh, it, it actually just depends on the book and where I'm going with it. Yeah, I was one of the things, um, selfishly, that uh, the, one of the places you use, I'm going to totally mispronounce it, but the, uh, the, the Shion Castle? Yeah, that's uh, right. I say Shalom, my wife corrects me because she speaks French. <laughs> Perfect. Um, uh, so I, I was actually there on my, my first trip to Europe. I was, uh, this is, you know, totally uh, diming myself out, but um, I was part of a, a, a symphony orchestra and touring jazz group um, one <laughs> summer in, in high school. And we stopped at, at that castle and 
you know, roamed through the, the dungeon and did the, the whole tour there. And as soon as I came up in the book, I'm like, oh, this is incredible. This is exactly how I remember it. It was really well done. Yeah, that's and actually uh, when I first started writing, because you do when you're doing uh, actual, you know, espionage, that kind of stuff, most of the stuff happens in places where nobody would be some back alley somewhere. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, I'd, so I'd go to a setting like I was in Ireland, run around trying to find a real seedy place where I could set it. Uh, and then I came to realize, you know, you're you're not writing an operations order here. <laughs> you're writing for a reason. <laughs> And um, people like seeing that kind of stuff. And so the, uh, um, my last book, Operator Down, I was in Israel all over Tel Aviv and Haifa Port. And so I included those in there, not to CD parts. I put things in that people would know. And uh, Shalom Castle was one of those 50% things that I had already designated I'm going to go do, I'm going to see. And then on our way back, um, to, uh, taking the train back, we stopped in Montreux for uh, lunch. Mm-hmm. And I came upon that Freddie Mercury statue. Which <laughs> I was like, what in the world is Freddie Mercury doing out here? Yeah. And, so that ended up in the book. I didn't know it existed. Yeah, you know, I really like all those those little snippets that you know you get to throw in when you've actually been someplace or or uh, have some familiarity with it. That 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 really I think makes it incredibly authentic for the reader. All those little anomalies that you know make life in any little town or uh, municipality uh, different from anywhere else. I I really enjoy reading about all that stuff. Yeah, and so it comes down to the granular level of, uh, um, you know, are there pay phones around there? Do, when you ride a train, how do you get on the train? Do they check your tickets on the train? Mm-hmm. When I cross the border from France into Switzerland, did anybody check my passport? All those kind of things you have to, they, those are nitpicky stuff, but I mean, as a refugee without a passport, how's she going to get to Switzerland? So I took the train from France to Switzerland. Nobody checked anything, and I'm like, okay, yes. she can yeah, you, I'm pretty convinced you can you can ride the Eurorail all day, um, maybe all month, and uh, and not get kicked off. Right. On uh, going back to Amina, um, I was you know in in the safety of my own home where I don't have to keep on a game face and keep my command presence at full level twelve. I I, I can be a pretty emotional guy. Um, there were points in Daughter of War that really struck me. Dire circumstances, helpless victims, truly evil men. You did a, a really great job writing the, the antagonist in this. Those scenes felt uh, very real, very raw at times. And I wondered how much of that was my own professional traumas coming through versus how much of that you were unboxing of your own. When you're putting those kind of scenes together, how do you go about orchestrating that emotional write-along for the readers? Uh, those, those are actually some of my favorite scenes to write, believe it or not. The, uh, and I, I have it in my head, sooner or later I'm going to get to this, where it's like, I have to get through all this other stuff, and then I'm going to get to that. And uh, I end up writing, uh, I, if you're talking about the canal scene in uh, Montreux, that probably took um, a week's worth of rewrites to get right. Wow. Uh, and eventually when I read it, then I'll let it sit, and I'll read it. And if I have the same experience you have, and I wrote the thing, yeah. then I say, okay, that's you've hit it. You can move on now. Yeah, I found um, with my writing, I, I, I have uh, a few scenes I've written are, are a little bit tough to write, um, a little bit tough to edit. It was tougher for me to hear it on audiobook, actually, than anything else. Um, hearing someone else speak it, it was, that, was, that was surprisingly tough. Well, the toughest thing I've ever had to write was uh, in my first book, One Rough Man, um, there's a tragedy Pike experiences, and it was off the page. And because one of the biggest fears we always had deploying was I'm overseas fighting the enemy. I'm in danger. Mm-hmm. What happens if my family gets harmed in the United States? Supposedly we're safe. Yes. Um, and we always feared that. And that's what happens to Pike. And my editor said, you got to put that on the page. And I really didn't want to. 
And yeah. so I sat down in a room by myself and put it on the page, but I didn't, I didn't like writing that at all. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that, that it ends up striking far closer to home and, and, and being far more personal than I, I think we even intend when we're starting out the process. Um, in your writing, one of the things that, uh, especially this book, Daughter of War, and I, I'm admittedly late to the Brad Taylor party. Um, I just, this is the first book that I've read of yours. And I, I am, I am just incredibly impressed with the way you put this thing together. Um, all the, the craft that went into this that, uh, specifically like with your dialogue, you do a fantastic job in this of subtly passing on information to the readers. And I would read a passage and something like a, a, a kind of flicker for a moment. I'm like, would, would two operators really need to have this conversation that are really part of a tight knit unit? And I, it was just a very subtle and very effective way for you to pass on information to the readers that they needed to know that going through it, it would be a very natural dialogue that it, it, I probably one out of, you know, few hundred, few thousand people are going to pick up on that. How do you put that together and make that happen so effectively for the reader? It's that's actually, it's a hard thing to do. One, one of the things I don't like about uh, the, my own genre is people bore you to death with uh, um, the, it basically spoon feed the reader, slap them in the head. Mm -hmm. Here's what's going to happen. And um, I don't like doing that. But then on the other hand, you don't want the reader to be lost. And so I, uh, when they're having conversations or even discussing, for instance, if I can, if a guy pulls out a pistol and takes a shot with a pistol, do I really need to say it's, you know, such and such a pistol in this caliber and it holsters this it's black, you know, <laughs> serial number, such and, and such. Yeah. Right. Is that necessary? Sometimes it is. Sometimes uh, in uh, all necessary force, this, uh, there's a uh, integrally suppressed Chinese pistol that they manufacture that I had to describe because that's a clue. He thinks he's chasing somebody from the Philippines. He finds his Chinese pistol and realizes that guy's from China. So sometimes it's necessary to put it in there. Um, other times it's, it's, it takes away from the flow of a fight or of anything that's going to happen. And by the same token on dialogue, there's something I need to let the reader know. And I don't want to write a paragraph that says Pike picked up a piece of paper and read this off of it. <laughs> yes. So he'll say something just very briefly in passing. This happens. And, and a lot of times my wife's my first reader and she'll say, Hey, I didn't how do you figure this out? And I say, well, I said it on this line here. And she said, uh, well, I completely missed that. So then maybe I'll add some more words, but if I don't have to, I, in my mind as a reader, I'm a reader first before I'm a writer. As a reader, I don't like being spoon fed stuff and I like being able to read exactly what's going on and catch it. But that's, there's a fine balance there. You don't want the reader to get lost. And then the worst thing to do is, for me as a reader, I hate having to go back to the book and flip through what yeah. chapter was that and where was that? So yeah. I try to get just enough to keep the reader going without spoon feeding the reader. So you got, got to go back and reverse Hansel and Gretel those breadcrumbs and figure out, you know, where that little bone, that little bitty one was that you missed. Right. Um, from, from my perspective, uh, I think that writers who are trying to put together an espionage thriller are going to have a much tougher time finding technical advisors than someone who's going to write about homicide investigations. I think, you know, those, those cops are a lot easier to find and track down and buy donuts and coffee. Uh, by the way, we all love donuts and coffee. It's the stereotype <laughs> is true. Um, but how can someone with, without the personal experience in this genre, how can they go about finding technical advisors or doing the research to put a story together that you guys who've been downrange aren't going to throw out a window? The, I, to be honest with you, it's gotten a lot easier. It's easier now than it ever has. It used to be, you know, back in 
well, as early as, you know, 2000s, you had a cue shop that did all the neat stuff and had all the widgets that nobody else got to see. Nowadays, it's all commercial off-the-shelf stuff. I mean, you can Google anything. I, I get a digest every day called the Hacker Newsletter. And every day there's a zero-day vulnerability for the iPhone or Android or something. Alexa, in fact, I'm writing my new book. I'm using Alexa hack. Um, but they're out there on the open market. I mean, spy shops are out there. Everything, it's, it's blending in more and more and more until the commercial stuff is outpacing uh, what the intelligence community and the military have. For instance, wow. uh, commercial drones right now, I mean, that's mm -hmm. tight competition to get a commercial drone. We're using drones for everything. Yes. The military says, we want to use a drone. We want to do this too. Well, it takes them two years to come up with a drone. By then, the drone technologies leap five years ahead. Uh, and it, we run our own problems with that. DJI is the number one drone maker in the world. Mm -hmm. It comes from China. Uh, yep. All the stuff that you talk to that drone gets sent back to a server in China. Basically, yeah, every DJI drone, unless you turn it off, is mapping in the United States right now. And the Marines were using a DJI drone. They said, hey, we're just going to buy it off the shelf. And then we found out, you know, you're basically showing China this whole base. And so now it's like, no more DJI drones. <laughs> yeah, we, we were um, working on a, a drone project, actually, when when we got um, got some info on that about the, the DJI uh, contract. I think that the contract was being canceled or there was... It was, you know, word was getting out that, you know, the military was no longer going to be buying DGI. And I'm like, that right. makes sense. <laughs> but the, the technology is going so quickly that, uh, and it, everything, you know, the Internet of Things provides so much. In my house where I'm sitting right now, there are so many ways I could penetrate my house to do something technologically to mm -hmm. get information for a novel. I could talk to my printer. I could talk to my washing machine. I mean, there's all these things that are, the Internet of Things that are easily hacked. And they put no uh, protections on them because nobody thought about that. Even in, in an earlier book, um, I can't remember the name of the book, Days of Rage, they have a pacemaker hack. Uh, Barnaby Jack came up with a pacemaker hack because the pacemaker's talking with Bluetooth. So they don't have to actually penetrate your chest to check out the pacemaker. They put a Bluetooth device in it so they can monitor what it's doing. Well, that thing's hackable. And um, that now has become a big deal. That and dialysis machines because people mm -hmm. can hack it and cause a dialysis machine to kill a patient from you know 40 feet away. Yeah, you know it's it, it's phenomenal to me how much how much of our own security we're willing to trade for ease and convenience and whiz bang technology that, um, you know. I think it's actually that it's not so much we're willing to trade it is that we don't realize we are trading it. It's not until somebody comes up with a penetration of it that we're like, I didn't even know that. Like the Alexa hack I just used, um, you know, Amazon was saying there's no way you can make this happen. Well, it turns out there's several ways to make it happen. Uh, number one, all the Alexas in your house talk to each other over the same net. Well, any hotel who has an Alexa, they're talking over the same net. So I could be in a room on the first floor and I could penetrate your Alexa on the sixth floor because they're talking to each other. Uh, and wow. the Alexa wakes up with a, a phrase, you know, Alexa, turn on this or whatever. It's a, a phrase that we hear. Well, the Alexa is actually built. It can determine or it can hear frequencies above the human ear. So you can make a phrase that says Alexa, wake up above the human ear and capability of hearing it. And Alexa wakes up and you don't even know it. Yeah, guess what's not going to be in my house when we finish this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one here. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm super paranoid. I I don't even um, I don't even turn on uh, you know my my OK Google search because you know it's just it makes me so paranoid about about being listened to, even though it's a corporation. Right. Like you never know. Theory. Well, I mean, just came out yesterday. FaceTime. Um, they came up with a group chat for FaceTime. It turns out you can turn somebody's cell phone just because of a glitch. Somebody figured it out. 
uh, a bug in the software. You can turn on FaceTime, add somebody to a group. They don't realize you've added them. Now their phone's a microphone. You hear everything they say. Wow. I should probably watch the news more. <laughs> <laughs> I get these feeds every day from various things that did, you know, because there's all kinds of hacking stuff going on. Yeah. I read them every day and come, sometimes come up with some ideas. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I think the, the best, the best fiction is, in, is inspired by reality, you know, um, in, in terms of that, do, it sounds like you're already at work on this, but do you already know what's next for Pike Logan? Uh, yeah, I'm looking at, uh, we just came back from a research trip to Brazil and, uh, I'm talking about the, uh, actually some of the actions that happened in daughter of war spill over into, uh, um, book 14. I don't have a title yet. I'm fighting with the title, put it that way. Mm. <laughs> But uh, it's one of the rare cases. Usually there's not much bleed over um, between the novels. This time there is. The guys that were chasing Amina figure out that uh, Pike's organization is not, in fact, Crowley Recovery Services. It's something else. And they're down in uh, Brazil Mex uh, trying to mess up the uh, Brazilian elections. And they're trying to gain control of the oil fields, which is the largest oil reserves found in the 21st century. And Brazil doesn't have the capability to get it out of the ground right now. So it's, there's a lot of people vying to do that in the background. Oh, yeah. Same. Oh, well, uh, is Amina going to reappear in your future novels? Yeah, I did. That's see, I, I always, I, I put a hundred percent in every book I write. So a hundred percent, but once that book's done, because it is a universe I've created, it exists. I wish I could be like the Marvel universe in the next movie, just completely discount what happened in the last movie. <laughs> It'd be so easy. There, since she's there, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with her. And I'm totally with that right now. I'm trying to, She's, she's already in the book right now, not necessarily as, as you know, she's not going to go to Brazil or anything, but she's, sure. she's got to be somewhere because she was there before. Plenty of times I, when I made the task force, which we don't actually have anything like the task force, I specifically wrote it, created it based on my experiences because I didn't want anybody to say I was writing about real world units and just changing the mm -hmm. name. So I created something that we all used to fantasize about, but doesn't really exist. And when I did that, I created um, what I thought would be left and right limits of how it would work, the oversight it would have and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then later on in another book, I'm like, man, I really wish I hadn't made the charter read this because I need him to do that. But once you write it, it's set in stone and now I've got to work around that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, your, your, your good guys have to have to be real flexible with the rules and you know, that's, that adds wow. another element. Um, I know we're running out of time pretty quickly here, but uh, what's your favorite crime show and who's your favorite fictional detective? Uh, I'd say my favorite fictional detective it would be uh, Lucas from John Sanford or Elvis Cole, I guess. Those two would tie. Um, I really I watch just a ton of movies. I don't really watch, uh, you know, I don't do the USA Today CSI uh, mm -hmm. blurb, as it were. Yeah. We're watching Passage right now. Oh, I haven't seen that. And Manifest. I guess Manifest is kind of a crime show. And where where can uh, listeners and readers find you most easily, Brad? Uh, they can find me on my website at bradtaylorbooks.com. And if they go to the website, they can, there's an excerpt for every single book I've written. They can read an excerpt of uh, each one. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show, taking some time out of your, out of your day to join us. Um, I guess, very last question. What, what would you most like readers to take away from, from your books and your stories? I guess I'd, what I'd most like them to take away is enjoyment. I, I don't, I never set out to have any kind of political agenda or anything like that, but uh, just enjoy the story. And I try to make it as uh, uh, too often Hollywood, somebody, you know, if Jason Bourne or uh, 
uh, you know, Jack Bauer, those bureaucrats would let him put a drill bit through some guy's kneecap, everything would be perfect because he knows everything. This guy's the bad guy and that's what's going to happen. And that's not the case. There's a moral dimension to combat. You make decisions in combat, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. And when they're bad, you live with that decision. And there's a moral ambiguity through any time you step into the arena, there's a moral ambiguity of what's going on. And I try to capture that in the book. Well, you just answered the question. I didn't feel like I had time to ask you about balancing rough justice between fiction and reality. So perfect. Thank you. <laughs> are, are you reading through my Alexa? <laughs> uh, well, with, uh, with all that, I'd like to, uh, uh, like to thank you very much for coming on the show, Brad. Um, you've been listening to writers on the beat where crime writers meet crime fighters. We're a proud part of the Authors on the Air radio network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.